Good morning, church family. Good to see you all. You know, there's a saying that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In other words, there's a corrupting influence that goes along with the human pursuit of power. And the more power people tend to acquire, the more corrupting that influence becomes. And we can see evidence of this around us, can't we? Tomorrow, we remember the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement that he led. And we can see how the corruption of power led to racial injustice in our society. People in positions of power misused that power in order to enslave and oppress and marginalize people because of their race, and some still do, because power tends to corrupt. See the corrupting influence of power in the political scandals we read about and see it in the workplace and in the classroom. We even see it in the church sometimes because power tends to corrupt. And the more power you have, the more corrupting that influence can be. And yet, we can't do anything of significance without power. Christian author Andy Crouch wrote a book a couple of years ago called Redeeming Power, Playing God. And in that book, Crouch says, remove power and you cut off the possibility of creating something new and better. Parents can't parent their children effectively without power. We can't be good spouses to our spouse without exercising some kind of power. You, you can't do a job or lead a team or serve in a ministry without having some kind of power. Power tends to corrupt, yet we can't do significant things without exercising some kind of power. And that is quite the dilemma. Now, we are two weeks into our series, Jesus Revelation. Over the six weeks of the season of Epiphany, we're looking at how the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, pulls back the curtain to reveal Jesus to us. And last week, we looked behind the curtain in chapter one, and we encountered Jesus as our king, our priest, and our prophet. Today, we're going to look behind the curtain in Revelation chapter 5 to see how Jesus wields his power. Because the way that Jesus uses power can help us see how to avoid the corrupting influence of power in our own lives. So if you're able, would you stand as we look at Revelation chapter 5? Beginning in verse 1, John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. 
Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of, Jes the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, and there were seven spirits of God sent out into the world. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one held a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Chapter five of Revelation is part of John's second of seven different visions. The second vision starts in chapter four and it ends in chapter seven. And here in chapter four and then in chapter five that we read here, heaven is pictured as a royal throne room with God enthroned at the center as king. And in this throne room, God is surrounded by a royal court of worshipers. We find similar visions in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. But this isn't merely a vision of heaven. It's more than that. One of my favorite books about Revelation is called More Than Conquerors, um, written by an eminent Bible scholar named William Hendrickson. And for several years, Dr. Hendrickson taught New Testament studies at Calvin College. And in his book, More Than Conquerors, Hendrickson says that, that this chapter describes the entire universe from the perspective of heaven. The purpose of this vision is to show us that all things on earth are governed by the Lord on the throne. So let's talk about some of the symbols that we encounter in this vision. We're introduced to a group called 24 elders. Who or what are these 24 elders? For centuries, Christians have debated exactly what the elders represent, and it really comes down to two options, whether they're angels or people. And throughout the book of Revelation, these 24 elders worship God, and they interpret events for people. So I think it's most likely that they're a group of angels, but I could be wrong. John also sees 
four living creatures in this vision. And some people say that these four living creatures are also angels, perhaps some kind of high-ranking angels, and that's quite possible. But I think it's likely that these four living creatures symbolize everything alive on earth, all living creation personified. Everything alive on earth is governed by God's rule and ultimately serves God's purposes. And finally, there are people described as those who are redeemed, who are purchased by the blood of the Lamb. People from every tribe and language and nation. This same group appears again at the end of, the second, of this second vision in chapter 7, verse 9. And this group represents God's redeemed people throughout time from creation to new creation. This is God's people in their totality across time and space from Adam and Eve until Jesus returns. The people of God. But the biggest question from chapter 5 is about this sealed scroll. In verse 1, John, in his vision, sees a rolled-up, sealed papyrus scroll that has writing on both sides. And back then, if someone wanted to keep what they wrote private, they would use hot wax and seal up the papyrus scroll with their signet ring. And the contents of that scroll would remain confidential, hidden until someone authorized by the person who wrote the scroll broke the seals, opened the scroll, and read the contents. And through the years, Christians have offered dozens of different explanations and interpretations of what this scroll represents. Some of these interpretations are very narrow. Some are very broad. In fact, we might picture some of these interpretations of the scroll as like a funnel from the very narrow to the very broad. The, the narrowest interpretation is that the scroll represents the book of Revelation itself, the book we're reading. A slightly broader view is that the scroll represents the names of God's people who are redeemed, what's later in Revelation called the Lamb's Book of Life. An even broader view is that this scroll represents the Old Testament as it's fulfilled by Jesus. But the broadest view, and the view that I think makes the most sense, is that this scroll represents God's entire redemptive plan of salvation from creation and the beginning all the way to the end. Hendrickson says this scroll represents God's eternal plan, God's purpose with respect to the entire universe throughout history. This eternal plan would include the book of Revelation. It would include the names of the redeemed, and it would include all of the Old Testament, but it would include even more than that. And the fact that this scroll is still sealed in John's vision means that John has a vision of God's eternal plan before it was revealed or carried out. If the scroll remains sealed and its contents remain hidden, God's plan to redeem his creation and to save people from their sins would never come to pass. And that's why John weeps. John weeps because he has a vision of what would have happened 
if God's plan of salvation never happened. He weeps because without the seals broken and the scroll opened, the world would remain forever captive to the corruption of evil, and the human race would be forever lost in the consequences of sin. And that's why John weeps. But then, as if on cue, one of the elders announces that the Lion of Judah is able to break the seals and open the scroll. And this is where Jesus is revealed to us. We know this is Jesus because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, from the clan of David. Now, in the ancient world, lions were the most fearsome animals on earth. People were terrified of lions, and for good reason. They were powerful predators. In the Old Testament, lions were often symbolized symbolized immense military power. In fact, the, the title Lion of Judah from Genesis 49.9 is a prophecy of a powerful lion-like military leader who would someday come from the Hebrew tribe of Judah. And this lion, this ferocious and fearsome figure is the only, enough, only one with enough power to break the seals and open the scroll. This lion is the only one able to reveal and carry out God's plan of redemption. And so after the elder's announcement, John expects to see a lion, but instead he sees a lamb. And this plot twist from verse 5 to 6 of Revelation 5 is arguably the most important part of the book of Revelation. Because if lions were at the top of the chain, the lambs were at the very bottom. Lambs are weak. Lambs are vulnerable. And this lamb has been slain. In other words, this lamb, although it's alive, bears the wounds of having been slaughtered. A slain lamb evokes the imagery of the book of Exodus, where each household slaughtered a Passover lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts in order to be shielded from God's judgment and set free from their slavery in Egypt. A slain lamb reminds us of the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah 53 predicted that the future Messiah would be led like a lamb to be slaughtered for the sins of his people. When we look behind the curtain, we see Jesus as the powerful lion who is also the sacrificial lamb. And this is the most important picture of Jesus in the entire book of Revelation. In fact, verse 6 is the first of 28 different times Jesus is referred to as the Lamb in Revelation. Now, if John turned in Revelation chapter 5 to my high school English teacher, Mrs. Cuisenberry, he would have been graded down for mixing his metaphors. Lambs and lions represent two very different realities. But that is exactly the point. The powerful Son of God conquers evil, 
not through lion-like violence or military force, but he conquers evil through lamb-like suffering and death. The ferocious ladder at the top of the food chain descends to the very bottom to become the sacrificial lamb. And we can be saved because the lion is a lamb. The great multitude of people, God's people of the past, the present, the future, including you and I, will someday be around the throne of God because the lion is a lamb. Verse 10 says that Jesus, this lamb, has made us a kingdom and priests to serve God. That phrase comes directly from Exodus 19, verse 6, which originally described the nation of Israel. But what originally applied only to Israel now also includes us in the church, all who are saved by the Lamb's sacrifice are made into a kingdom and priests. And these people will reign on earth. But before you get too excited about reigning on earth, remember how the Lamb began his reign. Jesus brought his kingdom to earth by suffering the shame of rejection by suffering on the cross. His first crown on earth was a crown of thorns. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see that God's people reign on earth through their suffering, not through their conquest. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Jesus always twists the cross we bear into the crown we wear. There is no crown without the cross. And it's this cross of suffering that can protect us from being corrupted by power. Once Jesus is announced as the lamb, all creation worships the lamb. He is worthy of all power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. The one who had all power became weak. The one who deserves all wealth became poor. The one who had all wisdom chose the foolishness of the cross. The one who had all strength embraced weakness. The one who deserves all honor chose the shame of crucifixion. The one who had all glory humbled himself. And the one who deserved all praise let himself be cursed by the very creation he had made. And so he is worthy of all power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Now, I should mention that Revelation 5 makes a distinction between the breaking of the seals and the opening of the scroll. Jesus begins to break the seals in the very next chapter, chapter 6. And some take this to refer to a future time of tribulation, perhaps seven years or three and a half years in length. But I believe the breaking of these seals represents the tribulations that God's people have experienced throughout time, past, present, and future. As Jesus carries out his plan from beginning to end. In other words, I don't think that the breaking of the seals is limited to a specific period of time. I think it's describing what life is like for God's people on earth. 
As Acts 14.22 says, God's people must all go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the breaking of the seals represents the sufferings of God's people throughout history, and the opening of the scroll represents Jesus carrying out God's eternal plan for all human history from beginning to end. So what can we learn about worship from this glimpse at Jesus behind the curtain? Well, first, this vision reminds us that we worship the crucified one, the lamb who was slain. The son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is worthy to carry out God's plan because he went to the cross. Sometimes I hear people say that Jesus came to the first time to the world as a lamb, but he will come the second time as a lion. But that's not how Revelation pictures it. At the very end of Revelation, Jesus is still described as the slain lamb. You see, lion and lamb are not just costumes that Jesus wore. They weren't temporary roles that Jesus played like an actor on a stage. The, the cross was not a distasteful chore that Jesus had to get out of the way so he could put it behind him and forget about it and get on with being a lion again. The cross is an expression of who he is, his very character. And he will always be the lion who is a lamb the one who vanquished evil by suffering, the one who overcame death by dying, the one who conquered Satan by allowing Satan to do his very worst to Jesus. This is who Jesus is. The cross reveals the character of Jesus. He will always be the lamb who is slain. And this is the one we gather to worship each week. Whenever our pursuit of power loses sight of the cross, we lose our connection to the one we worship, the crucified one. And sometimes I fear that Christians are so focused on gaining power that they want Jesus the lion, but not Jesus the lamb. Power without suffering, the crown without the cross, to reign on earth without persevering in faith. And that will surely corrupt us. You know, about 250 years after the book of Revelation was written, the Roman emperor Constantine claimed to become a Christian. And even though Constantine didn't act much like a Christian and postponed his baptism into the church until his deathbed, many Christian leaders rejoiced in his profession of faith. Because suddenly the church had unfettered access to all the levers of power within the Roman Empire. But many Christians found the corrupting influence of power a temptation too difficult to resist. And that corrupting influence of power led to things like the Crusades, to people becoming pastors in order to get rich, to state-sponsored executions of people who didn't embrace the Christian faith. 
And ultimately, this corruption that began in the third and fourth century would fester until the need for a major change that we call the Protestant Reformation that began with the conversion of Constantine. Because power tends to corrupt. And when we lose sight of the crucified one, the lamb who, the lion who is also a lamb, it can corrupt us. We also worship the redeeming one, the redeeming one. In this vision, we see that God's redeemed people are being gathered from across the world, from every nation, tribe, language, people, and culture. And if you read ahead to chapter 7, when John sees this great multitude in a vision, he's able to recognize people's cultures, languages, and race by what he sees. Redemption does not homogenize people into a vanilla sameness where we all look the same, worship the same, and speak the same. But through the cross, everything about us can be redeemed, including our culture and our race and our language. This is the redeeming God who we worship, the one who is creating a people for himself from every nation. And when we worship together each Sunday, we peek behind the curtain and are reminded of who we will spend all of eternity with because we worship the redeeming one. And lastly, we worship the worthy one, the worthy one. Nothing and no one from all creation was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. No created being was able to carry out God's plan to redeem creation and create a people for God. No angel or archangel, no president or prime minister, no celebrity or billionaire, no saint, no martyr, only the eternal son of God, the powerful lion who is the sacrificial lamb was worthy and he is still worthy is worthy of praise because he allowed himself to be cursed. Worthy of honor because he subjected himself to dishonor. Worthy of glory because he embraced the shame of the cross. And worthy of power because he laid aside his power to save us. He alone is the worthy one. And I know you hear me say this a lot, but I'll say it again. Our worship is not about us. It's not about our likes and preferences, about what songs we prefer or whether the pastor's message was entertaining. Our worship is not about promoting our ministries, profiling our people, platforming our pastors, showcasing our musicians. But it's about the worthy one. Making our worship about us robs Jesus of the glory, the honor, the praise that belong to him. And so in our worship, we focus our full attention and bring all that we are to the worthy one because he and he alone is worthy. This second vision of Revelation <clears throat> presents us with the most compelling image of Jesus that we will encounter in this series. The powerful lion 
who is the sacrificial lamb, the crucified one, the redeeming one, the worthy one, the only one who could break the seals and open the scroll to achieve God's redemptive plan for all the universe. You know, in Eugene Peterson's book, Reversed Thunder, Peterson talks about how Christians view worship differently than non-Christians do. When Christians gather to worship, they gather with the conviction that they're in the presence of God. Peterson says that worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules and speaks and reveals and creates and redeems and blesses as we worship with one another. But when the outside world sees Christians worshiping, they don't see that. They see a group of people that sings odd songs, reading from an old dusty book, splashing water on babies and dunking adults in pools of water, eating a little cracker and drinking a little juice. And Peterson asked the question, which is it? What do you believe is happening when we worship together? Because how you answer that question honestly will determine the value that you put on worship. When we abandon worship, we lose sight of what's behind the curtain. The lion who is the lamb, the crucified, the redeeming, and the worthy one. And when we stop looking behind the curtain each week, we become vulnerable to other forces shaping and molding us into different kinds of people. We become discipled by our culture, by our media, shaped and molded by everything other than the powerful lion who is the sacrificial lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this vision that you revealed to John and that is revealed to us centuries later. And Father, we thank you that that scroll was opened, that your son stepped forward to bring your plan of redemption, your plan of salvation, your plan that includes us today, 2,000 years later. And we thank you for the sacrifice that he made. And we thank you that that is who he is. May we follow the lamb. May we steward the power that you entrust to us the way he stewarded the power entrusted to him because he is worthy. Amen.